You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, go to simplify.us. No Simplify ETFs will be discussed in this episode. Let's roll. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got Rory Johnston, the writer of Commodity Contacts. Rory, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's wonderful to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Yep. Rory, let's start by talking a bit about your background. So, you know, you don't have the conventional, let's say, finance or economics background. So, you know, you went to Queen's, which is a pretty big university in um, in Ontario to study the securities and political science and stuff like that. So could you talk a bit about your background and, you know, how you made that switch into finance? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely think my background is kind of uh, heterodox, I think, relative to a lot of my kind of contemporaries. Um, and I think so I went into university initially with a philosophy degree. So that's why I, start, I started as a philosophy major in undergrad. I switched to political science and I kind of went hard towards a security studies stream. I did a lot of my undergrad work on counterterrorism and uh, kind of, uh, you, you know, IR theory, international relations theory and North Korean peninsula stuff. Um, so that was kind of my my focus area. And I came to oil initially uh, through kind of a, an interest in energy security. So like classic, you know, I read Dan Jurgen's The Prize. Uh, I'm sure like every other kind of fledgling oil analyst does. Um, and I was like particularly compelled by the energy security elements of it. This idea of, you know, the way it drove World War II and the, you know, Winston Churchill's decision to switch over the Royal Navy from Welsh coal to Iranian oil. Um, I think all those things really fascinated me. Um, so I, when I went to grad school, I went to U of T's Monk School, uh, great school like yourself. Um, and so my my focus there was I planned to continue on security studies. And um, I was really interested in this idea of energy security. And I think it took me probably the better part of a full year to realize that energy security is a really, really hard job to get directly out of grad school. There are like a handful of jobs in Ottawa and that's about it. And they're all like, you know, 50 year old former, you know, either heavy economists or kind of military folks. So my my uh, kind of interest area and kind of my my way of getting into the industry kind of shifted to whatever I could. And so I, I by happenstance, I ended up having a conversation, uh, getting introduced to the chief economist at Scotiabank uh, at the time, a, name, a guy named Warren Justin. Um, and he I kind of explained why I was interested in oil. Um, and he brought me on board kind of as a junior economist to kind of just talk about they're like, you know, we we need to talk more about energy. So, you know, come on board and kind of learn from us and kind of go as as it was. And it was a great kind of super, super lucky break and opportunity in the space that um, kind of I got thrown into an area that I was kind of had a lot of self-direction and kind of research. Uh, I got to publish openly. I kind of got to build a person like a public brand. I got to do a lot of media. Uh, a lot of presentations. And after a couple of years as a junior uh, economist, um, the person who had covered commodities at Scotiabank for over 30 years, and a woman named Patricia Moore, uh, retired in 2016. And I was kind of offered the position to just take over the entire economics commodities portfolio at, I think I was like 26. Um, so the chief economist at the time basically told me, you know, 
you'll do fine, but you don't, don't worry. Um, you know, I, I think the phrase was something like, I know you'll be drinking. Yeah, I know you'll be underwater for like two years or drinking from the fire hose or something along those lines. Uh, and that was absolutely true. I learned kind of very, you know, very fire hose-esque. Um, and after kind of six-ish years in Scotiabank economics, I decided at the beginning of 2020 to leave for actually a family office. I was kind of doing more quantum mental uh, equity analysis and kind of helping out with uh, with a hedge fund strategy or a kind of equity level strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the course of 2020 and everything that went wrong with, you know, COVID and how the markets kind of imploded, um, the, you know, as, as I, we took more and more kind of, um, you know, strategy kind of just like seeing what was going on, kind of pulling back a little bit, um, that was just as commodities went and particularly oil went completely berserk. Um, so I kept getting a lot of calls from my kind of previous media contacts. And I was like, um, like, look, like, I, I'm, I'm nobody now. Like, I'm not like, I'm not Scotiabank's voice anymore. And, and, and they just wanted to talk to someone about that kind of, you know, what's going on and how to kind of understand it. So for me, that was my, a little bit my sign. It was a, a lot of media driven, honestly, that there weren't as many kind of voices to fill that space as I was expecting. Um, so for me, I, I kept doing oil and commodities research to try and kind of not sound like a moron to journalists. And after a while, I was like, why am I not writing this down? And that was essentially how commodity context started was I was like, let's start writing this down and see if anyone cares. Will anyone subscribe? Will anyone read it? So I did the three. Thank you. Um, it, It ended up going really, really well. And I think it was a focus on kind of my focus is very similar kind of writing as I was doing at Scotiabank, not equity focused per se, not kind of market strategy, just more how I look at this market, how I understand crude oil in particular um, as a commodity, as a macro kind of variable. Um, and I did that for for basically it was a free Substack for about a year. And then I've just turned on uh, paid and I'm kind of building out a, a broader kind of business right now. It, it got enough momentum that it, it's definitely what I'll be doing for the next couple of years. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think what you're building is very cool. And that's, you know, let's, you know, let's start talking about, you know, everyone's favorite commodity oil and let's do it. Yeah. And broadly speaking in a post pandemic, you know, we've sort of had, uh, you know, uh, especially on Finsweb, we've had this group of very vocal oil bulls, you know, the likes of people like Harris Kupperman and, and, you know, and, you know, Cuppy has been sort of very vocal in talking about how, you know, the industry as a whole has, has seen sort of chronic underinvestment and, you know, we're going to see oil prices hit, say, $400, $500 a barrel in the next few years. So, you know, when it comes to the oil markets today, you know, how are you thinking through what's going on, especially in the context of what's going on with Russia and, you know, and obviously the supply constraints and, 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 and you know, how are you thinking through those dynamics? Yeah. So I think, you know, what I, what I try and explain to people normally is that, you know, back before COVID, back when I was at Scotia and back when I was kind of doing global forecasting and supply demand stuff, um, it was, you know, we we used to disagree. We used to have, you know, arguments over, you know, 500,000 barrels a day, or that was for the equivalent, you know, about 100 million barrels a day, global consumption, give or take as as a ballpark. So we're talking about like, half a percentage here or there on supply and demand. And that was that was basically the, the scope for argument. And it would be you know a little higher, a little bit lower. Obviously 2014 was a break in that, but I think beyond that, that was the kind of main kind of stories, you know, variables we were talking about. Um, fast forward to COVID and it feels like every single major variable, every line item in a major supply demand balance has millions of barrels of kind of error and uncertainty around it right now. We 
have U.S. supply, which has fundamentally kind of shaped the last decade of our understanding of how much oil costs in the world, um, had, you know, prior to COVID and the decade prior to COVID, you know, the U.S. accounted for more than two thirds of all incremental global supply growth uh, in the oil market overall. In, in many years, U.S. supply grew more than global demand did that year, thus kind of forcing a contraction often of kind of OPEC plus supplies. So that was being fueled by a ferocious kind of investor appetite for volumetric growth, but it never really turned around to profitable barrels. So it effectively ended up being a half a trillion dollar subsidy to global consumers uh, kind of of capital investment that went into the U.S. shale patch that never ended up actually earning a full cycle return. Um, that really fundamentally seems to have broken uh, during COVID. Now, it was something that we... Everyone had always talked about how this was going to be. It was this was unsustainable. Eventually, it was going to stop. But um, it took COVID. It seemed to like everyone just turned everything off, and it was that kind of like, "Have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again?" kind of moment. And when the industry rebooted, it rebooted with a much much lower price sensitivity to investment or investment sensitivity to price rather, um, and. Uh, there's a whole variety of reasons for this. And I think, you know, we can, I could talk a full hour just about this, but, you know, very, very, you know, briefly, um, the main thing people are talking, have been talking about for the past year has been this idea of uh, investor imposed capital or investment discipline uh, that after losing half a trillion dollars, um, they're like, well, it's our turn to get paid. Please don't ruin this by kind of going gangbusters on growth again. So you're growing less for an incre incremental barrel or there's less appetite for growth. At the same time, you have historic oil patch kind of supply chain bottlenecks um, up and down the supply chain for, for, oil, for oil producers, um, kind of like are being faced throughout the rest of the industrial economy. Uh, you have not enough labor, you have not enough steel pipe, you have not enough sand, you have uh, oil field services companies that haven't invested and kept their capacity going. All this together means that there just isn't, an, there isn't as much capacity to grow as quickly at any given price. Normally, you know, they used to talk about the shale band that below $40 a barrel, shale would turn off and things would come down and above 60, they would turn on and kind of balance. It was this, you know, economic swing producer argument, but they never, they never really swung on the downside. They only really kind of grew at any given price point. And I think what we're seeing now is that if anything, you know, at the very, very least that, that shale band has been shifted 20, $30 higher. Um, which in itself is a major development, but I think even then that assumes that you know uh, U.S. producers are going to grow at anywhere near the kind of level that they did before. We're going to need a million, million and a half barrels a day of growth from U.S. shale. Um, you know, I, it, right now we're not really on track to get that high, um, and I think that's this year. What about future years? What if prices fall? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They they can't hit that level when crudes at 120, you know, it doesn't seem like that they're going to do it at 80. But I think this is, we're still waiting to see. Um, so that's just US. <laughs> that's just US supply. You know, you've also got obviously the COVID waves, you've got China turning its economy on and off kind of on a whim right now that is throwing massive, you know, I think between 
March and April, Chinese uh, uh, Chinese oil consumption fell by something like three million barrels a day, which is just a staggering amount of of kind of demand to kind of swing that rapidly. Um, you and then you've got Russia, obviously a, a historic oil market break. Um, you know, land war in Europe. Um, you know, completely pariah stating the you know depending on how you count it, second or third largest oil producer in the world, one of the largest exporters. Um, so all of this together, it's just a completely wild market. I would say risks are tilted to the upside, but given the macro backdrop and how everyone else is kind of freaking out at every kind of turn, that doesn't that isn't to say that oil as a macro asset can't plummet precipitously as we have seen over the past couple of weeks. Um, but I think that, in any environment where we're already struggling to meet supply needs, um, a company that was considering growth and just had 40% of its equity shaved off probably isn't in an appetite to grow more than a couple of months ago. So I think the, the kind of pain we're feeling right now is only making our problems worse, it seems. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, the point that you made at the start where you said that the investment sensitivity to price is going down. So so when you say that, so do you mean that, you know, as price goes up, you know, companies are, you know, regardless of what's happening to price, you know, companies are just not willing to invest in additional plants because of the dynamics you stated, uh, you, you stated later in your answer, where you sort of talked about how, you know, shareholders just do not want, you know, does, they, they just do not, you know, they're enjoying record profits right now. They just do not want that to go down. Is that sort of why that's happening? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it, the 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 classic individual that kind of personifies this view is a pioneer CEO Scott Sheffield, and it's you know his his kind of quote was something along the lines of I don't care if oil hits three hundred dollars a barrel, I'm not growing more than five percent this year, and I think that is some that is something very very different than we've seen before. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, so in a way, they're not willing to expand capacity. Yeah, and I think it's. The challenge is that we have, I mentioned, you know, all those various things, particularly the supply chain bottlenecks happening at the same time. And because they're happening coincidentally, it's difficult to figure out exactly which one is the bigger driver in any given moment. Um, but I think that what we will see over the next year or so is those supply chain bottlenecks begin to ease. And then we're really going to have our test of, okay, now you can grow. Will you grow? And I think that will be the bigger question. Uh, and I think that's only only at that stage, I think, will, will we really know what kind of, you know, new normal the oil price environment is? Because again, I think there is, in my humble opinion, no other single source of supply in the world that can provide the scale of volume that the US can. So it's really, you know, can they or can't they? Beyond the U.S., and I think when you had asked uh, a question on Twitter about some people, uh, you know, if anyone had questions, and someone was like, "Where else can grow?" You're getting a little bit of growth from Canada. Um, you know, we are still seeing incremental growth in both conventional and uh, and oil sands, and now maybe even Eastern Canadian offshore over the next couple of years. So we'll get some growth there, a couple hundred, maybe you know, hundred thousand barrels a day a year max. Um, you'll also see some growth from Guyana, uh, which is a major new offshore development being led by ExxonMobil. Um, and that is kind of, you'll probably see a couple hundred thousand barrels a day each year there. A little more from Brazil and it's pre-salt offshore. And then basically OPEC, uh, you know, is Saudi and UAE spare capacity. And beyond that, that's it. Like there really isn't many other major, seg ma major areas of growth right now. Like 
Yeah. If, if we had $150 oil for a long time, I'm sure we'd see more develop. But there aren't currently any major prospects that I, that I kind of see in my forecast models that kind of would, that, that I'd be looking for for upside surprises right now. Uh-huh. And, and I think, you know, the, the important one seems to be OPEC. And so, you know, this, you know, the sort of the discussion has been that, so is, you know, the, the, the discussion has been, you know, is OPEC or OPEC plus really approaching their limit when it comes to oil production. Now, is that is that actually going on, or are they doing that just to mess around with the U.S.? You know, what what is going on with OPEC? So, are they do they really just have you know minimal spare capacity? Yeah, so I think it's important to kind of break first break OPEC plus into kind of OPEC and non OPEC. So let's forget non OPEC for a second because that's mostly Russia. It's mostly a, a kind of a, an other assortment of various kind of troubled producers in many cases right now. But let's look like just look at you know OG OPEC. Um, there you really only have effective spare capacity, like I was saying, left in two countries. You have Saudi Arabia and you have the UAE. Within the rest of OPEC, you all you already have chronic quota missing um, as people essentially, as producers can't keep pace with the quotas they've agreed to within OPEC. The two most egregious examples of this are Nigeria and Angola. Um, but you know, you only have a couple million barrels a day, even in theory, left between Saudi and UAE. Do, I, I, you know, this whole debate: do they have it? Don't they have it? I think it's really a question of: do they have a million barrels, two million barrels, or three million barrels? It's like it's even on the upside. It's not like they have unlimited spare capacity. You know, even on the very upside, Saudi has maybe you know one and a half million barrels a day more. That's historically low spare capacity, and I think it's also one of these things where we're gonna need it. Um, again, barring a super deleterious, you know, uh, financial crisis level pullback in global demand that would maybe buy us six, nine, 12 months of supply catch up. Again, you're going to assume that that's going to have harmful effects on global supply as well, because you're going to see those equities slammed. You're going to see state budgets pulled back, et cetera, et cetera. So all of this, I, I don't see a situation where we don't at least start to see the extent of those spare capacity limits. And I think it's it's really one of the first times in history where I think we're going to be testing those those limits. And I think it's, you know, a lot of people have ideas. Um, I have, you know, you know, I have various theories, but I, I, I've never kind of been inside a Saudi Aramco kind of building um, and I haven't seen the well logs. So I think I'll, the most, the, the least I can do, I'm, a, I'm an open source, researcher fundamentally. Um, I trust the official data. Uh, they have been able to reach higher levels before, albeit temporarily. I think it's, but even if they're, even if they're telling the truth, I think like people are having this big debate or, you know, are they lying? Or are they not lying? It's really not that much of a difference between them. It's like, it's like a million barrels a day. That's not a huge amount of it. Going back to that kind of, you know, we're, we already have well more than that on error bands around other major producers like Russia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I believe back in early July, you know, you published, I think it was a free chart deck um, when I, uh, on your, on your Substack, And one of the charts that was on it was, you know, the observable total petroleum inventory. And you sort of discussed that, you know, for, there is no incentive at the moment to really hold, uh, there's no incentive at the moment to hold any inventory. And the, and the reason for that is you know is the market is in backwardation you know there's the prices now are higher than the prices in the future so no one is really incentivized to hold oil into the future and so do you how do you how do you expect that to resolve when you when you look at the fact that you know a total invent a total petroleum inventory is sort of near its lowest level on record 
Yeah, and I think it's it's definitely back at it around the low level, below the low level that we saw in kind of 2010 to 2014, which we all kind of assume, we all kind of associate with this historic um, kind of tight, high price period. Um, so you're right. So oh, what's interesting is the inventories are really, really low now, right? And that's completely supported in the most rapid drawdown in inventories in history, uh, basically from the latter half of 2020 to the beginning of this year. Um, that was supported by historic levels of backwardation. But what's interesting is that those inventories that I track, which are essentially the global inventories I can see outside of China and Russia, uh, again, open source researcher. I don't, I don't, I haven't, I haven't fine tuned my satellite tracking models yet, but they're coming. Um, the, the what I can see has kind of traded sideways, interestingly, over the past, um, you know, four or five months. And I think what's interesting is that coincides with what my supply demand models show as actually a fairly pronounced oversupply in the market, which is the first oversupply in the market since the initial COVID wave. And this was entirely like 95% caused by China's law, you know, COVID zero lockdowns and that kind of 3 million barrel a day drop in demand. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is when you look at their trade patterns for that period, China, was, its demand was definitely down, but it was in, and I've seen other data that, that kind of proves this out, but Chinese inventories were rising. Um, but what you saw was they didn't stop buying the the you know their their normal or elevated level of crude imports. So what it effectively was was it was it was the it was the effective same thing for the global kind of market balances, um, which is why I think you kind of had this kind of you know extreme backwardation that persisted through that period of actual global oversupply, which I think was kind of a an, and you did see backwardation you know, ease considerably during that period, but you didn't see it flip into contango, which you would assume it would if you're building inventories at the pace that I kind of, you know, was projecting. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of scratching my head as to why not. And I think the, the China explanation, I think, solves a lot of it, which is they were still buying like it was a tight market. Um, and now what we're seeing is uh, now they're coming back, you know, demand is rebounding as, as you know, the COVID lo zero lockdowns begin to wind down. Um, and now we're back. So they, they do have slightly more inventory. So that is, you know, you could consider it, a, you could consider it a slight bearish overhang on the market, but not a lot. And again, we're only talking a couple months of slower demand in China. And now they're back, you know, the month before COVID zero lockdowns, my numbers had China consuming a record volume of, of, of petroleum products. So it's kind of from record highs, you know, to a very dramatic kind of early COVID-esque fall off in, in kind of demand. Mm -hmm. Got it, got it. And, and, and so, you know, when it comes to, well, you know, the demand side, so one thing that we're starting to see is the so the Fed has become very focused around this demand destruction dynamic. And so what we started to see is sectors like manufacturing have begun to slow down. So now how important is manufacturing uh when it when it comes to oil demand? And you know, is it is it material? And do you think you know the slowdown that we're observing in a lot of these man uh, a lot in a lot of these economic indicators as they relate to manufacturing? Do you think that do you think that is important to consider when you're when you're looking at what's going on in oil markets? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's important to differentiate kind of, you know, it's not super important to things like consumer fuels to the same degree, but it does correlate quite strongly with the demand for things like diesel fuel, things that are more associate, you know, heavy trucking, uh, you know, 
all of these things we were seeing about kind of supply chain bottlenecks and, you know, record freight demand, that was very beneficial for diesel demand. Um, now, at the same time, you have also seen, at least theoretically, some pullback in demand for uh, consumer fuels like gasoline. Now, you could say you could you can infer a couple things from this. I think some people are saying that it's a sign of early weakness, and I think it's probably right. I think you know there is some weakness that's being evidenced by those numbers, but it's not that weak. And you know, gasoline cracks they've fallen back down really quickly. So I think what's going to be interesting is, you know, uh, just the one thing we haven't talked about yet is how on top of this global crude market crisis, we also had an even bigger and more historic crisis on the, on the refining side of the market. Um, so when you and I kind of looked or tried to fill up our car at the, you know, at the, at, at the gas station, you know, we were seeing $120 a barrel for crude on the screen, but we were paying nearer the equivalent of $180, $190 a barrel for gasoline because the crack spreads, which are the, which is essentially essentially the simple refining margin, the difference between you know a refined product and the crude that would that would you know uh, go into to reform down to to make it. Um, that spread jumped from kind of a normal range. Most of my career, it's kind of bounced around 15 bucks a barrel, 15, 20 on a good year, you know, lows of lows of 10, kind of 10 to 20, right? During the heights of, of kind of this last bottleneck, you saw upwards of 60, $70 a barrel for those crack spreads. So this was the largest kind of refining, you know, dislocation in the market. So I think what, what thankfully we're starting to see is those those crack spreads come back down again. Hopefully that's going to you know solve some of that problem. And I think that could have you know gone a long way to explaining why there was some weakness in gasoline prices because sure, I think we can all we can all debate around what crude level threshold gets uh, kind of demand destruction. but the crude price doesn't matter. The product price matters for demand destruction. And mm -hmm. I think we can all agree $120 isn't demand destruction territory, but is $190? Maybe. I think you know that gets a little more realistic as to you know it was easily costing our family like 150 bucks plus to fill up the car. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the fill, fill up the family SUV. So that's you know that becomes extremely onerous very, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, one more thing that I wanted to touch up on was, so, you know, this idea of the commodity curve uh, or, uh, or here specifically for the crude futures curve. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, so, you know, your most recent, so, you know, your most recent writing. So, you know, you sort of talked about what the crude oil future curves, futures curve tells us. And so, so could you talk a little bit about one, you know, what, what is the crude oil uh, futures curve telling you right now? And two, I wanted to ask, you know, what is your general framework for analyzing uh, futures curves? Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a lot of debates and and I'll, you know, there's a lot of debates about the latter part of it, the correct ways to interpret. But the first thing I'll start is like, what is it telling me right now? And then it's telling you right now that that markets are slightly less tight than they were a month, month and a half ago, but they are still at historically tight levels based on the based on the kind of prevailing backwardation in the market. And again, as you kind of correctly uh, explained earlier, backwardation is a state where the futures curve is downward sloping, which is counterintuitive, right? I think this kind of gets to this, uh, my framework for understanding the curve. A lot of people, I think, incorrectly uh, interpret the curve as effectively a market forecast for the price, like the yield curve, right? I think it's, but the, the difference with something like the yield curve is that there are 
physical constraints, physical costs and frictions in the storage, the necessary storage uh, of crude oil during particularly pronounced bouts of oversupply. And in an oversupplied market, you actually have an upward sloping curve. So when the market is weakest, the 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 forecast is it seems most cheery, which is count, you know, that's that's the wrong part about it. And what it's effectively doing is it's paying for necessary storage through providing arbitrage opportunities for holders of inventory. In a backward-aided market like we find ourselves today, it's the inverse. You effectively create an opportunity cost by for not selling your crude oil that you have an in inventory to the market. And I think. Uh, a friend of mine, Ted Hall, actually had a really interesting idea that maybe super backwardation, the equivalent of filling super tankers with uh, crude during a super contangoed oversupplied market is actually borrowing uh, you know, borrowing barrels from demand uh, on the other side. Rather than rather than storing them, you kind of pull back temporarily on demand and say, don't do that road trip to, you know, this month, do it next month. And, and theoretically, you could think of the curve kind of serving a similar signal. Again, under the assumption that you could lock in future road, you know, uh, road trip prices. Um, but basically, so that, you know, I think the front of the curve doesn't say anything about a forecast or an expectation of the market. What it is saying is, and I'll say the front of the curve will be the first 12, 18 months. That'll be your kind of portion that is de it is determined by the kind of overall physical supply demand balance in the spot market and the necessary inventory economics that are required to clear that that kind of uh, you know uh, lack of balance or kind of unbalance um, imbalance that's the word I was looking for um, so that's that's what really what the front of the curve is telling you the back of the curve I think is a little bit more nuanced and I think there is an argument that the back of the curve say from the 36 to the three three to five year kind of range maybe that is actually something more like a market expectation of a marginal kind of uh, supply curve kind of you know uh, incentive price. And what you saw there, and when you look at the kind of back of the curve over the last 20 years, you see a really, really interesting uh, kind of shape. And you see this absolutely mega spike during the 2008 uh, financial crisis. And this was this, this was like peak, uh, peak, peak supply, if you will. This is when everyone was legitimately worried we were running out of fuel, like oil tomorrow. I remember I watched like a documentary back. I was like, I was in high school at this stage. I remember watching a documentary and I, it like petrified me that we were running out of oil tomorrow and society was going to grind to a halt. This is like the era of, you know, Jeff Rubin and kind of, you know, <laughs> the world is going to shrink. Um, and that kind of, yeah, that came and went. Um, then you had this higher price period where the back of the curve was up around 90 to 100 bucks uh, for most of that kind of 2010 to 2014 period. And then when when the shale uh, when the shale oversupply came, that back of the curve, that expectation dropped to $60 or lower. I think that tells you that there was this change in view that this was the new normal that you know we were never kind of unanchoring from here. And any producers or consumers that wanted to hedge far out, that was where they were landing on some kind of uh, presumed fair price. Now, what we've seen in the latest kind of since COVID and since this latest price spike is we've seen the first real kind of uh, durable breakaway from that 2014 to 2020 period. But we notably have 15 to $20 or more to go before we reach that pre-2014 level, even though spot prices were much, much higher than they were in 2014. So I think that's this, you know, I think the, the futures curve is saying the market is historically tight today. 
but the market doesn't necessarily buy that it's chain you know it's shifted it shifted the it shifted expectations but it hasn't fundamentally changed them i think you know the the long term expectation for oil prices is still lower today than it was pre 2014 but i think and i think it's just going to take a couple more years or maybe even you know maybe a year or less who knows um you know whether or not you know for higher spot prices to finally pull that back of the curve up um i think maybe if you see you know, whether this is, you know, um, shale still doesn't grow in the supply chain bottlenecks unwind, or we run up against some kind of unexpected early limit to OPEC production capacity that we don't currently see, or whatever, whatever the trigger is going to be, I think it's going to need something like that to reprice the back of the curve again. Because uh, I think that is, for a lot of oil producers, still what they're looking at in terms of their guidance. And I, at the beginning, I said, you know, the the curve is not a forecast. It's not the market forecast. Mm -hmm. But I still think a lot of people look at it as that. So I think it still has that kind of behavioral investment kind of, uh, you know, uh, transmission channel, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, the curve is not a forecast. It's sort of, but, but basically what it's telling you is that though the market is tight today, it may not be, you know, this tight in the future. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a fair part to that, right? Which is like oil is a very cyclical commodity. So if it's really, really tight today, it's probably a reasonable bet that it's not going to be super, super tight in two years. Whether or not past is kind of prologue here, I think that's yet to be determined. But I, that hasn't been a terrible bet over the last 20 years that bouts of exceptional tightness are usually followed by less tightness. But again, in that past, we had a ferociously growth kind of obsessed shale patch and yeah. that's i think what is very fundamentally different today mm -hmm. yeah okay so you know if we go okay so you know let's let's shift and talk so you know you spent a lot of you know the, uh, a lot of our conversation really talking about supply so you know if you if you go to the demand side you know what is the demand side looking like and uh, you know i think you also you touched upon what china's doing with regards to its lockdowns and its mass quarantine so you know they they sort of you know uh, they've been flipping the economy on and off you know uh at their whim so how, how do you how do you think this plays out um from the demand side so you know broadly the supply story has been that it is hard to, it, that in a way you know the supply and the inventory you know those, those type of stuff that type of thing is very tight in this market but what does the demand look like yeah, and I think so. Um, overall, globally, uh, just before those those COVID zero lockdowns, we had just kind of more or less reached pre-COVID levels overall. Um, now, I think the important thing to remember there is um, just because we reached pre-COVID levels does not mean me, does not mean that we reached pre-COVID trend, right? We still had plenty of upside to go if you were to see a real kind of renormalization back to trend, as one could expect or like you've seen in other kind of, you know, consumer spending metrics, for instance, um, that we haven't seen yet. And most of that is because we still, we still haven't seen a real rebound in global international air travel. That's still the major factor that's, that's kind of holding back. I don't have the number in front of me, but somewhere in the ballpark of it, it's still down like 50% uh, relative to where we were pre COVID overall. Um, that I think is, um, you know, that's that kind of structural element. Then you also have this policy risk element that you know, that's two pronged. One, you have a policy risk element in China, as you were saying, them kind of, you know, willy nilly kind of turning off and turning on the economy, uh, which is very disruptive. Obviously, not only is it disruptive to oil demand now, but it also 
hampers and kind of harms the global macro environment, which, you know, increases the probability that we fall into some kind of, you know, particular, you know, especially deleterious recession. Um, so I think there's there's that front on China. And, you know, how are they going? You know, where is it going? I have no idea, because I think if you would rewound a couple months ago, I would have said, oh, would they have shut down 40% of their economy two years into COVID because of a couple hundred cases? That seems unreasonable. I don't think they're going to do that, but they did it. Uh, and whether or not they keep doing it in the future, I think that uh, there are other people that have much better views on that than I am. I think eventually, you know, it normalizes. Eventually, we get out of this. Um, Eventually, China will set uh, kind of new all-time high demand numbers again. And I think, you know, unless something seriously changes over the next couple of months, that's probably going to be later this year, early next. Um, but again, I think it's obviously been so volatile. On the on the ex-China side, there's this kind of other kind of question of this broader macro malaise that we're obviously stuck in. And it's very much, as you were saying, I think at the outset, like it was, it's very much a policy choice of central banks throttling back you know, global economy, you know, the overall global economy to kind of reduce some of the demand pressures on inflation. Um, and I think as and I were saying in a different context earlier, but I think the challenge is, is given the extent to which obviously there is some demand element here. I don't think anyone's arguing otherwise, um, but there's very much seriously a supply element also going on. And, you know, uh, you know, Chairman Powell himself, I think, has said, you know, he can't affect the supply side, but he does have a commitment to price stability. Now, what that means is, you know, really throttling back demand as much as he can. But as we were saying, again, in another context, that also has financial market implications, which have reduced, I, I think, the incentive or, or the kind of, you know, allowance uh, for U.S. shale to grow again. I think if you're looking at it through this lens of, of supply discipline and in, particularly investor-imposed supply discipline, um, the, the nearest metric I could think, you know, you can think of as a barometer of, of how close we are on a relative basis to kind of finally getting, you know, investor approval to grow again, well, it's equity prices. And I think if, if your equity price was at kind of a multi-year high back in early June, maybe, maybe you were actually thinking, maybe we'll grow, you know, maybe, maybe next year's plan is gonna, you know, to actually grow and kind of lean into this mega cycle and try and gain some market share because no one else is growing. Um, but then, you know, I, I made this joke on Twitter that like, you know, the, the you know, the C-suite's having this debate and then like the intern scram, you know, scrambles in and says, uh, just to let you know, the share price is down 40% and oil is down 30 bucks. And then they, you know, throw the growth guy out the window because I think that, you know, that just doesn't seem like a very, popular kind of, uh, you know, set of circumstances in which to grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, you know, how would you, so, you know, for example, if you were say the US government, so, you know, how would you actually work on resolving these, uh, resolving, uh, you know, these higher prices, so, you know, so far, you know, we sort of discussed that, you know, on the demand side, there's only so much you can do. And then on the supply side, you know, then again, you know, Jay, Jay Powell has very little power on the supply side. And, you know, and so, you know, and so, you know, what really happened? So, you know, what can say the U.S. government actually do in the situation? You know, do they have to um, go ahead and say massively subsidize the construction of new new refineries or do they have to, um, you know, subsidize the, uh, subsidize the production of oil? You know, what, what really has to be done in this situation? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. I think on the refining side we're probably going to be okay. I think it's, you know, I think the, as I wrote another piece on commodity context, um, 
I very much view the majority of the issue on the refining side as this collapsed bridge between you know the legacy refine, refining fleet, much of which is situated in the West, uh, and the new age of these new, highly sophisticated refineries coming online in places like Nigeria, uh, places like uh, you know through the middle through the um, uh, Persian Gulf and into India and China. And this was always going to be a major source of of, of competition for these legacy refiners that was going to be hard to compete with. Those. What we saw during COVID was a bunch of those legacy refineries closed early because of COVID, and a bunch of the refineries that were supposed to be coming online opened late or, or had their open dates pushed back. That opened up this kind of gulf in the middle that was very, and I know transitory is you know a dirty word in macro these days, but it is like fundamentally a transitory um, kind of a bottleneck that should you know that that should uh, kind of solve itself. A big part of the reason why you didn't see more investment in western refineries was because you saw this competition coming down the line it's not it's not you know it's you can't hide these facilities everyone knew they were coming right they're massive um so that's still coming down the line i think that will help uh ameliorate the refinery side on the you know upstream side let's say crude oil i think it's a much trickier issue because you know at the one at the one end you have you know a very real need to decarbonize the economy um, but at the same time, you know, the period between now and net zero, we're going to need a lot of oil. Um, but who is going to put that capital at risk uh, for projects either that kind of, you know, are opposed locally now or kind of might not see demand to break even later? Um, that's a huge risk for for uh, companies. Uh, it's a huge risk for investors. Uh, so I think they're reasonably apprehensive about kind of deploying that capital. So the question is, how do governments help <laughs> send that signal without kind of you know outright nationalizations? I think which you know some you know I, I heard on another podcast recently people are like are nationalizations an option? Well, it's like well. Probably not. <laughs> seems seems like a bad idea. Um, but I think there's also this very reasonable question of like maybe if you know are there elements that could be bolstered in terms of state capacity? And I think um, uh, my friend and I Skanda have done a lot of uh, kind of you know talking. We were on the Odd Lots podcast talking about um, the you know the uh, strategic petroleum reserve and and how that could be used in different contexts to help even out some of the volatility in oil markets. I think that is an interesting way of kind of thinking about a new frame of state capacity in this era of volatile energy transition. I think you're also looking at obviously in Europe and this massive issue of reliability of Russian gas. You know, is there is there space that even if even if the governments don't want to open free range for um you know uh private companies to explore and produce uh, gas in Europe maybe a state actor could effectively build a strategic gas reserve in the ground, right? You know, it's it's already there. You just have to like build a capacity to produce it when needed. So I think there, there are a bunch of options, but I think the challenge is, is that the, the market is gonna be very, very challenged to deal with this in an efficient way because of all those uncertainties bouncing around and because of those mismatches of kind of, you know, near-term and longer-term incentives that make it very, very difficult to get and the market to solve, if you will, uh, at least not in an extremely volatile way. And I think this is a very rough early example of what that energy transition, I think, can look like if not handled well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know that brings me to my next question. So I so I did want to touch up on the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and so 
I believe the first time that Biden actually released some oil from the SPR or announced the release of oil from the SPR, if I remember correctly, oil actually went up. And, you know, the consensus, at least on FinTrack, was that this was sort of a sign of desperation in the sense that, you know, it's, it's gotten so bad that Biden actually has to use the SPR in order to, you know, bring oil prices back down. Uh, you know, so how are you, how are you thinking about the SPR? And, you know, you sort of mentioned that, you you know you had some you you had some ideas around how the SPR could actually be used more effectively just within this just within the scenario that we're facing right now. So how so how are you thinking about what the, so how are you thinking about the SPR and what can be done with it? Yeah, so I think there's there's a couple of ways to think about the SPR. I think there's a right way and a wrong way to use the SPR. And I think when you look at the Biden administration's decision to it's a, its first SPR release back, I think it was in Dece December of 2021, maybe it was November. Um, but that I think was a bad SPR release. It was a simple, straight emergency release. It, this is the one that I think you were saying. You know, the the price went up. You was seen as a sign of weakness. I think if anything, I probably disagree that the extent that it caused. You know, it was I think it was a coincident factor. Um, all else equal. And particularly because those barrels weren't being released in the market yet when it was announced, right? So um, when the mark when the barrels are released, they are real barrels. If all is equal, that should bring prices down. But I think the challenge is, is that if you bring prices down with finite temporary supply, which is what I effectively think of the SPR as, kind of discretionary supply, um, that I think you know makes your situation worse, right? It's just, it's just borrowing from the future, um, and you have to pay it back. Yeah. Now I think. What you've seen since then, and, and basically earlier this year, the Biden administration announced a all-time largest SPR release in history, coordinated with multiple countries around the world. Um, you know, overall, it was something in the order of a, a million and a half barrels a day of capacity. That is a massive amount of incremental oil to the market. Um, I think that has fundamentally helped stabilize the market today. The challenge is, is again, is are we just simply borrowing from the future? And so far. We are, but but there have been early good signs that the particularly the U.S. administration is thinking about it in a different way now. And I think I've written a, a bunch of pieces about this. Um, uh, you know, the, the good uh, analysts over at Employ America have done really really good work on the policy and legal side of this. Um, the idea essentially is to use the SPR in a way as a kind of inventory battery. And this is again more this is more my slant that Employ America has a better or a kind of a more broader kind of a financial, you know, options contract infrastructure. Mine is just straight simple. I'm a simple guy, basically treated as a massive discretionary source of inventory, a battery for the market. In periods where the market is exceptionally backwarded, like we find ourselves today, um, you would sell heavily into that market. Uh, and then immediately what you would do is you would buy the same barrel back some distance down the curve, whether or not that's a year, two years, three years. I think there, you have scope for deciding how you're going to do it. But the idea is not just to push down the front of the curve, but to pull up the back of the curve, yeah. which again, through this kind of idea is what, what this should signal to the to the producers is that there is more demand back there. It, it makes you know, a whole variety of their hedging more attractive. Um, they can lock in guaranteed supply if they are concerned, guaranteed demand if they are concerned about that. That is, I think, what what something like the SPR should be used to do now because it's kind of traditional conception, I think is more, it's been, it's kind of, it's historically been underutilized and has been instead kind of used as a random piggy bank occasionally by Congress to pay for discretionary items. Um, but 
you know, again, it's it's a it's a hugely unique asset in the global oil market in that it is, you know, it's inventory that doesn't need to follow, you know, uh, you know, backwardation or contango signals. But I think it can do it especially well if kind of directed to by the president. And I think that is, I think, a better way to use it to try and just smooth out some of that like intertemporal volatility and try and stabilize the market in a very direct way. Um, that I don't think any any other aspect of the economy can do as well. It's almost like the inverse of kind of Saudi production. They can they can go up or down, and U.S. has a capacity to produce over a million barrels a day on you know if it wants to, but only for a temporary period of time. And I think it's you get run into a bad situation if you just sell it all down, and then you just don't do anything. And I think that's the worry that I have right now. And I, I'm and again. We have seen signs from the Biden administration that they are thinking about this in a different way. There's been a whole, a whole suite of proposed rulemaking changes that allow them to do different things with con forward contracts. I think that you have seen really interesting progress there. And I think, you know, one of the great, one, one of the opportune things about this energy crisis is it, it gives us a very, very early kind of moment to think about how to structure policies around what I, again, think will be a very, very volatile transition. And I think it, yeah. it it's the responsibility of governments today to think about how to manage the next 10, 20 years of energy price volatility so that we kind of get to a net zero future without, you know, you know, periodic bouts of economic crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, with, you know, with that in mind, um, and your last point about how governments need to manage it, you know, let's go across the, across the Atlantic to Europe. And so, you know, Europe is in many ways facing uh, a different crisis compared to the U S simply because they import a huge amount of their energy um, from Russia. And, you know, as we know, you know, Russia is engaged in a conflict with Ukraine and what we're broadly seeing there is we're seeing these incredibly high natural gas prices to an extent, higher oil prices, et cetera. We've seen their electricity prices, for example, go through the roof. And how, how do you, how, you know, what would you, uh, you know, if you were responsible for solving the crisis or, you know, uh, in, in Europe or, you know, you were supposed, or, you know, um, you had to sort of figure out, you know, how this would all resolve, you know, what would you, you know, what would you be doing? You know, how would you actually resolve the crisis in Europe? And, you know, and, uh, how, and how do you actually think it's going to be resolved? Do you, th do you think we're going to see a shift towards nuclear, for example? Do you think we're going to, uh, you know, eventually see, you know, Russia get, you know, sort of sentenced as the international pariah and, you know, everyone starts to shift away from Russian oil. How do you, how do you think this plays out? Yeah, and I think you know I'll split the answer in two here. And I, on the first part, on the like, let's say the gas and power side, I will fully acknowledge, you know, broad opinions and awareness. But my main kind of expertise and kind of research focus right now is on the oil side. Mm -hmm. On the gas, and that's I think what we'll talk about just quickly. Second, um, on the power and gas side, I think there are definitely obviously this is a you know, an existential crisis for Europe. Um, I think you know many people have known for a long time that Russia probably is not the most reliable uh, supplier of, you know, gas and kind of critical energy. Um, but despite this, there just seems there hasn't been a, there, no one took it seriously until now. Um, thankfully, people are starting to take it seriously now. Uh, whether or not they will be able to, you know, address the issues quick enough, I think is a major kind of question. Obviously, there's some uh, kind of attempts at getting more and more liquefied natural gas export or, or imports, particularly from the U.S., um, I think, you know, you know, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has talked about kind of more LNG liquefaction capacity on the East Coast of Canada, which is a great idea. 
it won't be ready for this crisis, unfortunately, but I think it's a good idea regardless, and it will be helpful in the next crisis. Um, but, you know, has Germany seemed to have backpedaled on its nuclear retirements? No. Um, they're bringing back coal instead, which, I mean, is bad because coal isn't great. Uh, but I think it is necessary in this moment, again, to avoid an existential kind of crisis. Um, so I think it's 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 a whole bunch of kind of it's it's a, just a really really bad situation. And I think that if anything, it is worst for Western Europe today. I think this is much worse for Russia in the long term, though. Again, this is the idea of the energy weapon, uh, kind of to a T, that Putin is using gas exports to squeeze Europe. This is not something that you can do repeatedly. This is something that it's kind of, this is it. Uh, Europe has got the message. Russia is no longer a reliable supplier. Um, they're moving dramatically quickly to find, you know, other liquefied natural gas import opportunities or kind of, you know, they have changed their rules and, and kind of um, policies around nuclear and the rest of the EU. Um, You've seen kind of a major prioritization of building out kind of an industrial policy around things like heat pumps, which kind of allow, you know, it's basically electrified alternative to uh, to natural gas fired um, uh, kind of furnaces. Um, so I think that that's all good for Europe in the long term. It's just, again, this is a, a one of the, it's a worst case scenario for the volatility and human suffering and economic suffering of all this happening kind of at once. Um, but again, at the end of this, Russia is effectively going to have permanently reduced the demand from its previously largest purchaser of gas and oil. Um, then the, uh, with that, we'll switch to the oil side. The oil side, I think, has been confounding to date. I think the way it's the way the various policies and sanctions have trickled through has been counterintuitive, to say the least. Um, what we've seen initially when the sanctions hit was broad self-sanctioning, because uh, when the sanctions first came on, they explicitly excluded oil and gas. Um, that, you know, very quickly kind of it gave way, but even before it gave way to actual explicit, you know, uh, kind of prohibitions on, on, you know, imports, let's say from the U S or Canada, um, it was, uh, the self-sanctioning activity of, of, of companies that were trying to avoid public reputational harm. I think the greatest example is Shell bought a, bought a shipment of Russian oil at the beginning of the crisis, kind of in line with what it was. With, with what all the rules said it should be able to, and then was basically forced a couple of days later to kind of backpedal and say that they're not going to buy Russian crude anymore. Um, so this effectively actually hit refined products first. And this also helped, you know, add further fuel to the fire of the global refinery crisis. You lost about a million barrels a day of Russian refining capacity um, in the in that first month or two of the self-sanctioning activity as people kind of pulled back from a lot of this kind of what, what we call intermediate product, things like vacuum gas oil or fuel oil, things that are kind of semi-refined, but need to be sent to another refinery to kind of refine further into diesel and gasoline. That was what cut, got cut back, which reduced the effective refinery yields of a lot of the, of a lot of the uh, traditional refiners that, that consumed that product, you know, much of which was consumed in Western Europe and the United States. Um, so that helped precipitate that. But all in all, what you ended up seeing was this massive pullback, you know, that trickled through to demand for domestic Russian crude and that backed up into their inventories. And then their, and then their uh, you know, production fell by over a million barrels a day. And we thought that was kind of the start of something, you know, calamitous, right? That was the beginning of the end. Uh -huh. And then that, that was the bottom. 
And then they it started bouncing back. And you saw much more capacity than I think people were initially expecting, myself included, um, for Russian, sorry, for uh, Chinese and Indian buying, uh, particularly Indian buying of Russian uh, crude exports, particularly from the Mediterranean and, and kind of the Baltics. So I think this was this challenge that, you know, now it's increasingly going to Asia. It's going there for a steeper discount to justify the extended uh, kind of logistics and the kind of limited buyers. Uh, but it's still going there. Now, how much further can it go? I think this is what everyone's debating. No one knows exactly how the proposed insurance ban is going to ricochet through. It's going to reduce, it's going to mean that Russia can't use upwards of 90% of the global uh, global shipping fleet. But can they make do with what's left? You know, can they put, can they build another pipeline to, to Asia? Can they uh, put more on rail cars? Can they, you know, can they do these ghost ship kind of transfers where it kind of, you know, sneakily gets into the global supply chain. I think there's a lot of scope. And I think at the end of the day, you know, until Russia has proved more resilient, I think it's still early days. I think, you know, in the longer term, the question is, will, can they maintain production if, um, you know, if, um, uh, they've lost Western joint ventures with with Western oil majors, and they've and they've lost the expertise and and kind of technical capacity of the oil field service companies. I think all of these things that have pulled out of the country are as kind of an anchor around the weight uh, around the neck of Russian production. And I think at this stage they're proving resilient, but I still expect that the kind of the trend is going to be the down, the downside, even if this is a kind of a temporary boost back up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Rory, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You know, before I let you go, could you tell the audience a bit more about where they can find you on Twitter, et cetera, as well as your Substack? Yeah, thanks so much again for having me. Um, on Substack, uh, it's a commodity context. It's commoditycontext.com. Um, and that is a kind of premium uh, chart forward uh, kind of data intensive look at the commodity market. And I kind of publish multi, you know, usually about once a week, some kind of content, uh, and that's going to continue building over the future. And I'd love for you to join me. Um, and on Twitter, I'm uh, at Rory underscore Johnston. Uh, and I kind of live tweet a lot of my research process there. Uh, so if you don't join the Substack, uh, follow me on Twitter, and uh, you'll get a, a lot of different content. Yeah. Rory, thank you so much for being on. It was awesome talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.